Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. The continuing collisions, trucks versus overpasses. Here we go again. Two of them yesterday. What the truck is going on. Got Andy Roberts standing by to discuss. First, let's talk about the first one yesterday. Now, this one snarled traffic in the Fraser Valley. Highway 1, number 3 overpass. Now, on this one, the police saying the truck blew a tire. Okay, have a listen to Sergeant Paul Walker here, Abbotsford Police Department. At this time, it appears that the truck, uh, one of the front tires of the vehicle while traveling eastbound along Highway 1 blew, resulting in the driver losing control, entering the uh, center meridian and striking the overpass. So this is not a criminal uh, investigation. Okay, I talked to a a truck driver once who told me that happened to him, actually while he was driving, that the tire blew. And maybe that's not the fault of that driver in that one. But then you get the other one yesterday in Langley. 264th Street overpass. Again, we see a piece of machinery loaded onto the truck, appears to hit an overpass. Let's listen to this report from Global News. In Langley, a similar scene. It appears a piece of heavy equipment on trailers slammed into the 264th Street overpass. A large green metal item can be seen resting against the concrete divider a short distance beyond the overpass in the westbound lane. The incident caused a huge traffic backup during the morning commute. Okay, it was traffic uh, carnage there on in the valley yesterday. Let's discuss this with my guest now, Andy Roberts. Andy is the owner of Mountain Transport Institute in Castlegar. They teach drivers how to safely drive trucks in our province. He's one of the main experts on trucker safety in BC. Andy, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Michael. Glad to be here. Okay, Andy, here we go again here now. Not one, not two. But first, let's talk about the guy who apparently blew a tire and slammed into the median uh, pillar in the middle. Is that is that the fault of the driver? I mean, you, it's not your fault that the truck blows a tire, right? Generally not, no. I, I mean, you'd need a, a much deeper investigation, and based on the fire that ensued, I don't know that anybody will actually know for sure if there was a defect present in that tire when he left, but... Um, yeah. You know, it, it's very easy to, to pick up something that's, uh, you know, run something over that can cause the, the tire to deflate slightly, and, it, and then it overheats and it will blow for sure. Okay, then we've got the other one, Langley, 264th Street overpass, and again, we see a piece of machinery hit an, hit an overpass. Andy, what is going on with that? Like, these guys, are, are they not measuring the height of these loads here? What's going on? Well, obviously they're not. I I, I just, I, it, yeah, I'm, I don't know what to say. Like, I... I it's beyond belief that this continues to happen. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I, I guess the one question I have for everybody is who pays to fix the overpass? Because apparently this isn't expensive enough for people to pay attention to how high their loads are. Um, I, I don't know. I, it's just a miracle nobody's been killed. Yeah, we, we've had 15 of these in the lower mainland now, mainly due to these overheight vehicles. And I think that's a good question. Who does pay for this? I think there are circumstances where the trucking company, if they're found at fault and negligent, the driver's at fault, they can be stuck with the bill for the repairs, correct? I don't know that. And, and it's okay. an interesting question that, that uh, does ICBC get caught with the bill for this or... Mm. Does the cargo insure the, the company that insures the cargo get caught with the bill for this, or is it the trucking company? Yeah, there does seem to be uh, an inconsistent application here of the results. Here, we we know there are fines and penalties, but there are people who complain the fines and penalties are too too low. They're too lax. Do you think they are? Well, based on results, it would appear they are. Um, yeah. People people don't be, seem to be scared enough to get a tape measure out and check their height. And, uh, you know, the 264th overpass is, is not super high, but it's not one of the, low, the lower ones either. 
Yeah. Let's talk about some of the potential reasons here for this, Andy. And we've seen a rash of these happening. So what are some of the potential explanations? First of all, you're an expert in training drivers. Are, are truck drivers in our province inadequately trained, do you think, typically? Well, I, the training mechanisms have improved greatly with the MELT program that started back, in, you know, 18 months ago. And so we're, we're on the right track. But, I mean, there's a, there's a, a, a huge gap in there where people were taking very, very short courses and uh, load securement and things like that were not a required part of that training. So there's potentially a huge number of drivers on the highway today that have never had formal training in load securement or checking, you know, dealing with oversized loads. Yeah, and when it comes to that measuring, making sure the the height of the load that you're you're hauling is going to fit under this overpass, how does that work? That's the driver's responsibility to ensure that's cor- that's correct, right? So the, there's two. Yes, I mean basically, when I pull out on the highway, I'm responsible for for the for my load, my truck, the condition of the vehicle, all those things. But it also falls back to the carrier. The trucking company has a responsibility to ensure their employees are properly trained, and that falls right back to the basis of of WorkSafe British Columbia, where you know every worker has a right to be trained properly by their employer. So. If somebody isn't measuring properly, then either they they haven't been trained properly, or they're not giving been, being given the time to do the job properly. Yeah. Speaking to Andy Roberts, Mountain Transport Institute in Castlegar, I've also heard that there is a shortage of drivers, and that as a result, you have some inexperienced drivers getting behind the wheel of, of a truck, a vehicle they're really not not properly qualified to drive, like. I've heard that guys are getting, you know, very little experience, and then suddenly they're behind the wheel of some huge 18-wheel tractor trailer. Is that going on? I, I, I think it is. Um, with the driver shortage, uh, people are being pushed into jobs that have a higher level of responsibility than they would have, say, 10 years ago. Uh, I think that carriers, in some cases, are hiring drivers that they wouldn't have hired 10 years ago um, because they have empty trucks, because they have loads to haul, because they need to pay the bills, if you will. Um, so the industry, the industry as a whole has, has, you know, the quality has dropped overall, I think, in the last 10 years because of that. Yeah, I talked to a guy who said there should be almost like an, an apprentice-type system. You start driving smaller, lighter vehicles and kind of work your way up to the big tractor-trailers. Is that typically how it works in this career? You start small and work up? No, that's how it used to work. Years okay. <laughs> ago, um, it, you, know, you started in a, in a single axle delivery truck and you worked your way up and then you did town work and then you worked your way onto the highway and then five years down the road you might, you might get into some, some more complicated heavy haul stuff. But um, these days people literally do come straight out of school and, uh, you know, they're, they're running super trains uh, down the highway over the Coke into, into Alberta, up Highway 3 to our, our area as well. Like right out of the training school? Well, I mean, yes, right out of training school. And, and the good yeah. carriers, the quality carriers, put them with mentor, driver mentors. And, right. uh, you know, and they're mentored in, into those positions. And the good quality carriers will start them in you know, with single trailers, jobs, and smaller jobs like that. But in a lot of cases, uh, some of the other carriers don't have the capacity to do that or they they don't believe in doing that, and they will literally put people straight into super trains and and send them off to Calgary. Okay, Andy, last question for you. What do you think needs to be done here to make this safer, to stop this from happening? Got any thoughts on that? It's not a quick fix, Michael, is is really the scary part of this. Um, because there's just such a glut of drivers out there that that uh, didn't have a lot of the formal training that they probably should have. Yeah. Um, I think the the only real solution is that this has got to start cost, costing some of these trucking companies a lot of money so that they pay more attention. Yeah, right. Andy, thank you for coming on. Have a great day. All right, here we go now with teen Uber accounts. So this just announced by Uber, kids as young as 13 eligible to get an Uber account. Would you let your teenage son or daughter ride in an Uber car? We've got Uber general manager Michael Van Hemmen standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to this report from Global News. 
Canadian teenagers will soon be able to grab a ride from Uber. The company announcing it will allow Canadians between the ages of 13 and 17 to make passenger accounts on the platform. Now, previously, anyone under 18 was banned from holding an Uber account. The organization says parents will be able to monitor the car and message the driver. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Michael Van Hemmen, General Manager, Uber Canada. Very pleased to welcome him back. Michael, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. Okay, thank you for doing it. So, Michael, tell me why Uber is doing this. Like the previous, as we heard in that clip, it used to be you had to be a minimum of 18 to get an account, correct? That That's right. And so uh, there was a number of, of reasons why, but really it came down to customer demand. So uh, it started off when we did a a transit partnership with the town of Innisfil, which is a a small municipality around an hour, hour and a half north of Toronto. Um, We did a transit type program for them because they didn't have enough money to or enough uh, traffic effectively, enough demand for fixed bus routes. And so they used Uber on demand where the town subsidizes Uber trips to and from the community center, um, to and from town hall and so forth. And what they found was that... um, when they were designing the program, they were like, one of the, actually the groups that we need to provide transportation for are our teenagers, our young people. And we didn't have uh, any technology around creating accounts for those, for those folks or teenagers at the time. And so what we did was we created this kind of like cumbersome paper-based process with the town where a parent had to go sign a waiver um, uh, to set up a teen account. Um, and then the town would send that over to us. Um, from the demand, the demand from that was actually more than what we had expected. I think then in addition to that, we started to hear more and more from, from parents um, across Canada in general saying, do you know what, uh, where we live, transit is great, or my kid is too young to drive, or honestly, I don't have a car for my kid uh, to drive, and we would like to have this, this option. So we looked at, at the demand and said, do you know what, um, there's clearly a need here where people want to help get uh, their teenagers around. And practically speaking, one of the goals of Uber is to help people be less reliant on owning personal cars. And we do that by ensuring there's great transit system, but also ensuring that there's opportunities not just for for adults to ride, but but teenagers. And uh, so we were able to pilot um, first in in Innisfil some new productized solutions with additional safety features um, and then roll that out. Uh, just recently now with a big announcement and Vancouver was one of the first cities to get it and the rest of, of Canada okay. will be getting it before the summer. Okay, Michael, let's talk about some of the, the safeguards that, that are built in here because, you know, as a parent, I got teenage kids at home. I mean, and a lot of parents are saying, well, I'm not sure. So I got a, I got a 13-year-old daughter. Am I going to let her go alone, get in alone into an Uber car? So let, let's, So let's talk a little bit about this. Because yeah, I think so, that, you know, you don't want, you don't want your kids getting into a, a vehicle as being driven by a drunk driver or accept a ride from a stranger or something they meet at a club or something. So let's talk about like some of the safeguards. Tell me about those. Yeah. So Mike, I guess we're kind of similar. I have a 13 year old going on 14 year old, but son and, yeah. and two other younger children. And, and so safety is obviously critically important to, to every parent. And it was actually, when we look at the different product teams that we had designed different features for Uber, it was actually the safety product team at Uber that designed um, the teen accounts because we knew that that was going to be foremost uh, important to parents, whether or not they needed to help to get their kid from point A to point B, uh, safety was going to be the top concern. Right. So things that we've put in place, number one, Every driver has to go through the criminal record check that's standard that's been put in place by the province. In addition to that, in order to receive uh, requests from teen accounts, you have to have completed hundreds of trips with zero complaints and have a high star rating. So that's kind of before the trip begins, who's eligible to drive your children. Secondly, when the trip is is ongoing, uh, we have things like uh, ride checks. We're using GPS. Uh, sensors to see if a ride is going off course to give notifications uh, to to individuals or if you've been paused for a long time say uh, there's a traffic accident ahead of you and the car you haven't been able to move in your car uh, we will automatically send a ride check in uh, to see whether or not the the, everything is going okay with that individual trip there's live trip tracking which allows the parent to know who the driver is who's going to be picking up 
uh, their their team, and then to also monitor the trips to be able to see where they are in the route and when they get to the destination, understand that. Um, and audio recording for the trip as well, which allows um, a certain level of, of, of certainty around the fact that uh, deterrence by the fact that everything in the, in the vehicle will be will be recorded, but only available uh, in the case of an investigation where it needs to be shared um, and, and investigated. Okay. Um, and then... Fu- and then finally, if I can add one yeah. more, Mike, yes. uh, one of the challenges that we sometimes see, especially with folks who are newer to Uber, is that sometimes they feel like they're nervous about getting in the wrong car. So in order for a team to start a trip, they have to give a, a PIN number, which is built into the app, which allows them then to give that to the driver, and only the right driver is able to start that trip. Okay, it's very interesting. Can you request a female driver? Uh, can a can a customer request a female driver? Yes. No. Okay, I, I, that was that's what I thought. We just on the show yesterday, I heard someone say you can ask for like, let's say you've got a you know a, a young girl is is going to take an Uber trip. Can they can they ask? Look, I'd like to have a woman driving me. Yeah. So no, we don't have that built out. Um, it's actually difficult to do because the vast majority of drivers are male. And so yeah. it wouldn't it wouldn't be a reliable service that we would be able that we'd be able to offer. But I think to like touch on your on your higher level point, um, every family has to make the decision that's right for them, right? Yeah. Like some thirteen year olds will be totally responsible enough uh, to to take a trip. My son, uh, we live in Port Moody, and you know this past this past summer when he was almost thirteen. Um, he, he asked, like, hey, my friends are going to go meet at Coquitlam Center. Can I take this SkyTrain with them to Coquitlam Center? And, you know, my wife and I had to actually <laughs> take a moment and, and, and have a think. And, like, is this, was that something that we thought our, our son was old enough and responsible enough to do? And we decided, in his case, uh, that he was. With our other children, we, we, may have, we may come to a different, a different outcome. But, really, Teen Accounts is a tool for parents to use to help service transportation needs for their family. Okay. Add another person. Go ahead. Okay. Let me. I just want to play a clip here, Michael, from yesterday's show. So this is Anita Roberts. She is the CEO of a group called Safe Teen, and they are dedicated to keeping teenagers safe in our society. And we talked about this, and she told me that she has some mixed feelings on it. Like she can understand how. Parents would want to make sure their kids don't get into a vehicle with a, with a drunk driver or something. But she was also worried about this these teen Uber accounts. Here's what she had to say to me yesterday, Michael, then I get your thoughts. Anita Roberts, yesterday's show. I mean, they vet lots of, you know, they vet their, they vet, as you were saying earlier, they, they vet their drivers, they do criminal record checks. They're doing all this, but they're not doing it to keep teens safe. They're doing it to make money, obviously. This is a brand new market for them. And, um, and they're really going to make tons of money. Parents are super busy. Okay. They're not doing it to keep teens safe. They're doing it to make money. Well, I mean, Uber is a private enterprise. But w- your thoughts on that? Like she says, she understands there are safe- safeguards being brought in, but this is really about expanding your customer base. Your thoughts? So we're doing this because we've seen challenges, in our, even in our own families, and we're trying to meet the needs to... to to resolve that. So like an example that I can give, again, we live in Port Moody. <clears throat> we have one vehicle, three kids. So like Tuesdays and Thursdays are mayhem in my house because all three of our kids have activities on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So there are times when I take an Uber by myself, go up the, to the top of a heritage mountain to grab my son at his, my 13 year old son at, at the end of his soccer practice, because my wife is uh, um, out with my other two kids taking them to activities, but she had dropped him off previously. So yeah. now instead of me taking an Uber, taking an unnecessary trip for my family, but also an unnecessary car trip, uh, adding congestion and so forth, um, an Uber can pick him up and, and bring him home. And so that solves a number of concerns for us, both on, on the safety, you know, is he going to take transit? There's uh, um, considerations there. Is a friend going to drive him? Or eventually when he can drive himself, uh, young people statistically aren't the safest drivers. And we're putting in, and as we highlighted, we're putting in place um, drivers with no complaints, extremely high star ratings right. um, in order to help p- people feel uh, safe and secure. But it does come down to like what works for your family. This yeah. is a new tool that we think 
uh, parents will like and love. We've had more interest in this new product launch than we have in almost anything else that I've been a part of, perhaps aside from when we first launched in, in Vancouver, because yeah. a lot of parents are like, yes, like this is a challenge for my family as well. Speaking to Michael Van Hemmen, General Manager of Uber. So also, Michael, we had a big reaction from the listeners on this story yesterday. We had a ton of phone calls. I want to play one of the calls that we received because this is from Derek, a listener yesterday, who said he is an Uber driver. And have a listen to his concerns here. Then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. I'm an Uber driver. I have been for a couple of years. And to be honest, I wouldn't like to carry teenagers. I've had no trouble with them. And with... uh, Normal passengers, to be quite honest, they can't handle their drinks. They're rude. I I just don't want to carry them. Okay, so he said that he actually doesn't want to take teenage customers because in his experience, they, you know, sometimes they're out drinking and they're rude. Michael, have you heard that from any of your drivers? Uh, We have, although that's the minority opinion. So the the two steps for a driver to be eligible to receive requests from, from a teen account are first, all the screenings that I highlighted, then the second one is that drivers can drivers who meet those criteria, so they've passed the criminal record checks, they've passed the hundreds of trips completed, they have zero complaints and a high star rating. At the end of that, they're eligible for teen accounts, but drivers have the ability to turn off accepting accounts from teen, from, from uh, accepting trips or receiving requests from teen accounts. Okay. So a, a driver like Derek, if he qualifies in all the other ways, he doesn't have to re- accept uh, accepting trips. Instead, what this allows, and what we've seen overall, is more than 95% of earners do. Um, they're obviously drivers are 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 in this um, to make money for their families as as well. Sure. But a lot of them, but a lot of them view this as actually them helping out their community, and okay. when they're moving people around. And that when we've done research on this with, with drivers, that was reinforced even more when we started talking about teen accounts and then thinking about like their own teenage uh, teenagers um, and how would they want them to get around safely and seeing okay. this as an opportunity for them to continue to serve their community. Michael, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for coming on. No worries, Mike. Have a great yeah, rest you of your bet. day. talk about British Columbia's illicit drug overdose crisis now, the continuing wave of fatalities, the controversies recently over harm reduction, especially safe supply of drugs to reduce overdose deaths. The chief coroner of British Columbia, Lisa LaPointe, standing by. First, let's have a listen to this report here from Global News reporter Paul Johnson. Another month and another tragic milestone in B.C.'s drug overdose epidemic. The coroner's service reported Thursday that a record 206 British Columbians died in April, almost seven a day, a 17% increase from April of last year, bringing the year-to-date total to 814. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Lisa LaPointe, the Chief Coroner of British Columbia, and I'm very pleased she could make the time today. Chief Coroner, thank you very much for coming on today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. So let's talk, first of all, about the numbers that we heard in this report. I think in some case, in some ways, we're becoming numb to these numbers, but, you know, when we talk about seven people a day dying, what does that number mean to you as the province's Chief Coroner? Well, I appreciate you um, noting, you know, how just how many people we're losing in our province. Um, we have lost an average of more than six people a day since the beginning of 2021. And of course, since the beginning of the crisis in 2016, we've lost more than 12,000 people. And these are people across uh, BC and communities, big and small. Uh, it impacts families and um and neighborhoods and, you know, co-workers, it's, it truly is a crisis that's hitting, hitting us very, very hard and continues to. Does it surprise you in any way that these numbers continue to be at these shocking levels, given everything that the province has tried from harm reduction and other measures, expanded treatment? Why do the numbers keep going up, do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think one of the things that surprised us initially when this public health emergency was declared in 2016 I think we anticipated that uh, we would see uh, a flurry of activity in terms of response, harm reduction, and then the numbers of people dying would drop. And I think 
some of the some of the information, some of what we learned since then is that we have significant numbers of people in our province who are opioid dependent or uh, suffering with opioid use disorder. So estimates are that there are over 100,000 people in our province with the opioid use disorder. So the dependence on the illicit market, which has been so toxic and continues to be, as you know, it's unregulated. Uh, we continue to see new substances uh, all the time, but fentanyl continues to be prevalent and uh, really is the, the the drug that is taking the most lives. It's, it's present in about 85% of all deaths in the province, and it is just uh, very, very difficult to regulate fentanyl in, in terms of um, I don't mean in terms of legal re- regulation, but in terms of people who are using it, because a couple of grains can make a difference between life and death. Right. Okay, Chief Coroner, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the controversies here over harm reduction measures, and especially safe supply, because I know you've been paying close attention to this this dialogue. This is These are issues that have been brought up prominently in the B.C. Legislature and the House of Commons, and we've talked a lot about it here on this show. So the idea of prescribing a so-called safe supply of opiates to a vulnerable drug user here um, to give them hydromorphone or Dilaudid, which is the the commercial brand name, so they don't die from street drugs like fentanyl. And I know you followed closely some of the, the controversies on this. Let me play a clip here for you from Eleanor Sturko. BC United MLA, sort of the lead critic for the opposition in the legislature, how she feels that these safe supply drugs are are risky and not being managed properly. Here's what she told me on an earlier show, and I'll get your thoughts. Dilaudid still poses a risk to the public. It is not a safe um, drug. It is a publicly supplied addictive drug that can lead to addiction. A person can still overdose from it. Would you would you say that is that is true that there is a risk of these safe supply drugs people getting addicted to them overdosing from them? I think it's important to recognize that dilaudid hydromorphone is a pain uh, reliever that is prescribed widely across the province mainly for reasons other than safer supply. So about 80%, a little more than 80% of prescribing of Dilaudid in the province is for management of pain. About 14% is under the safer supply program. So Dilaudid can be used very safely and is used very safely across the province. But, of course, there is um, always room in any medication prescribed or bought over the counter for abuse and risk. And that's where we have to be carefully monitoring and evaluating. And absolutely, with safer supply, it's critically important that um, we, we watch for unintended um, outcomes. And the safer supply program has a rigorous evaluation framework, and it is being evaluated. Um, the data I have seen some early data. Um, I can't speak about it, but I believe it's going to be re- really soon. Uh, and it shows that it is really um, making a difference in people's lives. Uh, yeah. I am aware of some of the concerns about the downtown east side and um, availability of Dilaudid. Although I'm informed that Dilaudid was always available in the downtown east side any time in the last 20 years. Um, but I also think it's important that people understand that the downtown east side is a unique neighborhood. We did have 400 people die in the downtown east side, sorry, 300 people died in the downtown east side last year, which was tragic. But if we, even if we prevented every death in the downtown east side, we still had 2,000 deaths in the province. So this is bigger than the downtown east side. I think we just have to be really careful um, when we're monitoring. Okay, the the concern that keeps being brought up is diversion. Could these drugs end up in the wrong hands? Could they be diverted? Could they be sold on the illicit market? Could they end up in the hands of, of kids who use these drugs? And I know you've heard these concerns. I want to play a clip here for the listeners. Uh, uh, this is you speaking to a recent conference at the BC Centre on Substance Use and where you outlined that you had, you'd heard from some concerns that had been outlined about this diversion. And let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. And we discussed this on an earlier show with Eleanor Sturko as well, we'll discuss. But here, here you are speaking at a recent conference. Let's listen. Physicians are afraid that if they prescribe and it's diverted to an opioid-naive user, they may become opioid-dependent and they may die. And 
I understand that. But that may happen to some people. But the fact is, six people are dying every single day. So, Chief Coroner, did I hear you correctly there? Am I understanding your point here? Is that there is a risk of diversion that these drugs could end up in the hands of of people who are vulnerable drug users or naive drug users, and, and they may die from these drugs, but that we have to keep going with safe supply because so many people are dying from fentanyl. Is that is that what your your point there? Well, two things. So the 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 context is that this is a public health emergency that has cost us 12,000 lives, and we continue to see an average of more than six people die every day. So we could do nothing and allow six people to continue to die every day, or we could follow the advice of the experts. And we, we at the BC Coroner Service had a death review panel with subject matter experts. We know certainly the Select Standing Committee on Health, that was an all-party committee, um, uh, legislative committee, uh, that heard from hundreds of witnesses, both in person and written, all have come to the conclusion that safer supply is essential in order to separate people from the toxic black market drug supply. If we don't provide regulated drugs for people who are at risk of death, they will continue to die. And so my comment was made in that context that, yes, it is absolutely understandable. We are all concerned about diversion. We need to monitor and evaluate, and I can assure you that that is going on. But what is the alternative is, is to not provide safer supply. And our death review panel members have been very clear. This is not a dichotomy of treatment, whether it's a medication-supported um, treatment or, or residential treatment or safer supply. This is a continuum of care to um, respond to an urgent health crisis that is just having a massive impact on our province. And I think you know that um, the the leading cause of death for people aged 10 to 59 in British Columbia is drug toxicity. And that is not wow. from prescribing. That is the illicit black market. Okay, so if there are concerns around diversion, though, are you would you be willing to acknowledge that it's possible that these drugs could be diverted? They could end up in the hands of, of vulnerable users who maybe have never tried these drugs before and who may misuse them, may overdose on these drugs. But that is a price, that's kind of a price we have to pay here as part of safe supply. Yeah, so first of all, I think we need to be aware that opioid naive users are dying regularly uh, because of access to the illicit black market. So opioid naive means somebody who maybe uses cocaine regularly, maybe um, methamphetamine is their drug of choice. They think they've purchased one of those two stimulants, but in fact there's fentanyl in the in the drug that they purchase. They are opioid naive and they die. And we see that scenario. Um, so yes, absolutely, we are not um, certainly... Um, unaware of the concern about diversion. And it is a legitimate concern. As a, I mean, I've been a coroner in this province for almost 30 years. I've seen many drugs diverted, prescribed, and otherwise. Uh, it's always a concern. I think yeah. we just need to be cautious to say, oh, you know, we need to look at, we need to, there needs to be a continuum of care. It needs to be a variety of approaches. This is a, a massive, complex health crisis in our province, uh, and let's not be too quick to um, conjecture and and lose the opportunity to save lives. Speaking to Lisa LaPointe, the Chief Coroner of British Columbia. Chief Coroner, while I have you here, let me ask you about the um, situation at Surrey Memorial Hospital, and we see doctors there continuing to speak out about the lack of the service reductions there, the staff shortages. And this is a clip that is playing on our news, every station in BC today. And you, you will hear Dr. Claudine Storness Bliss here, who is an obstetrician at Surrey Memorial Hospital, and talking about staffing levels at that hospital, which she believes led to the, the death of an infant. And I want to play this clip for you and get your thoughts. Let's listen to her, Dr. Claudine Storness Bliss here, Surrey Memorial. We have had one newborn death that 
uh, at least the lack of resources can be directly applied to this bad outcome. When we do reviews of, of bad outcomes, it's extremely difficult to actually um, attribute lack of resources to a specific outcome. Uh, but it is very obvious that it certainly is at play here. A, a lack of resources that may le have led to the death of an infant. Uh, Chief Coroner, I'm just wondering if, you're, if this has been brought to your attention, or is that something that would set off some alarm bells for you that you would investigate? Every child of a death in this province has to be reported to my office. Okay. So that death uh, will have been reported to my office, and we will be investigating. And we certainly will uh, speak to the parents. We will speak to the attending physician. We will gather the medical records, um, and we will try to establish the cause of death. It is it's oftentimes more complicated um, than a clip uh, on the on the radio can can yes. provide in terms of context. But absolutely, we will be investigating that death, and that was that is within our jurisdiction to investigate. That is very good to know, Chief Coroner. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about the wedding season in British Columbia getting set to take off in a big way. Of course, June begins tomorrow. Oh, what a beautiful time for a wedding. I guess it starts uh, not tomorrow, but the next day, right? 30 days, half September. Anyway, June is coming, and weddings are roaring back. Bigger budgets, longer guest lists, and things getting more expensive, too. Of course, with inflation, check out this survey here now. In the United States, what is the average price of a U.S. wedding? According to wedding planning website Zola, $29,000 in 2023. That's U.S. 29000 Think about that. 40000 Canadian. People will spend that much on a wedding? Wow. I've got Emma McCormick standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report here now from CNBC. I hate to brag. I'm a professional wedding guest. I'm the wedding king. Hanging out with the groom. After COVID put lots of his friends' weddings on hold, Matt has an avalanche of invites. I haven't seen the front of my refrigerator in, in months. It's just pictures of invites and save the dates and a little bit of my dog. <laughs> Get ready for the wedding. Weekend after weekend, he's shelling out for gifts, gas, hotels, and more. I don't want to say an exact number, but let's just say it was like four digits. I've had to buy a lot of suits for weddings. It's bananas. We are literally doing two wedding seasons in one year. What do you want to see on your wedding day? Desiree Mordet is a wedding and event planner in Chicago. People are ready to party. They're ready to celebrate. They're ready to witness love. Okay, they're ready to party, ready to celebrate, ready to spend some big bucks here, too, to throw a big wedding, that's for sure. Let's check in with Emma McCormick now. Emma is a wedding planner, and I'm very pleased to welcome Emma back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Emma, this must be a super busy time of year for you as the nice weather returns and the wedding plans get get rolling. How is your business doing? Because I remember talking to you at the height of the pandemic. And oh my goodness, you were like just shut down. How are things going now at your uh, your wedding planning company? Definitely. Well, we work on Vancouver Island and most of the southern Gulf Islands. Um, sometimes you can find us over on the mainland as well. And we are busy. The <laughs> understatement, I think, is ready to party. Um, everyone has come out of COVID and has their dancing shoes on. The disco balls are out and everyone wants <laughs> to throw a wedding. <laughs> I, I love it. And a lot of weddings were, I mean, there must be pent up demand here, right? Like a lot of weddings got delayed. Absolutely. So 2022 was definitely our busiest season on record. I think our team did about 110 weddings, and that's before the corporate events and other celebrations that we do. Um, so 2022 was nuts as far as how many weddings we actually did. This year, we actually have a little bit less, but what we're finding is we're having um, larger amounts of guests at the weddings, and we're working with larger bu budgets in the 2023 year. Okay, so you are seeing this trend as well, because this is being reported in the United States. Weddings are getting bigger. The guest list is getting longer. The budgets are going up. So how much do people spend on a 
on a wedding these days. Like this report here talked about $29,000 U.S. for a wedding. Like are people spending that kind of cash here? Well, yeah, absolutely. Like the average cost in Canada of a wedding in 2019 was 29000 Canadian. Wow. So we've definitely gone up since then. Um, I would say on average, um, we're kind of around the forty to 50000 mark. Um, there are definitely clients who do it for a lot less, and we definitely have clients who do it for a lot more. Um, but to really throw a wedding, and that's without a ton of the extras, um, clients are really looking at kind of committing around a $40,000 budget to their celebration. Wow. Okay. So that's very consistent here with the U.S. numbers that are being reported. It's almost bang on the same. $40,000. And when you factor in inflation into this, I mean, are prices going up for everything? Because that's what I've heard out of the U.S. as well. Like, Everything is going up, whether it's music, flowers, photography, like, you know, is everything more expensive now? Absolutely. Like everything is more expensive. The the flowers is a big one for sure. And as we're seeing the results of global warming and different um, different industries, especially food industries and the floral industry impacted, um, the supply and demand has changed. And we really have been dealing with a lot more um a lot of extended prices for those in particular. Um, so the cost of catering has gone up, the cost of staffing for the catering, for the bar programs, all of that has gone up across the board. Um, and the florals that are being imported um, from elsewhere internationally, like so much more expensive. Yeah. Speaking of Emma McCormick, wedding planner, yeah, this is her busy season for sure. And you talked a little bit, Emma, about the guest list, and you're seeing sort of longer guest lists, bigger parties. What is a typical typical size wedding these days, like a big wedding? How many people attend? Um, I mean, big weddings were kind of starting around 150 people and going going up from there. Um I would say we have a few weddings this summer that are over 200, but here on the island, we actually have smaller venues um, than over on the mainland. So the average wedding here is about 120 guests. Okay. How about the influence of social media? Because this was reported in the United States as well, that in the age of Instagram and TikTok, everybody wants those perfect moments, those perfect photos, those those perfect social media posts. Is that playing a role here now? Like as people sort of want to go a little bigger, a little grander because they're documenting it all on, on social media. Absolutely. Instagram, Pinterest, they all play a big part in what we do. There's lots of inspiration that can be found there, but it can also be challenging because it becomes not a competition with weddings, but definitely a, well, this is what I saw at this wedding. And, you know, this wedding, they had inflatable an inflatable bouncy castle. And this wedding, they had a, <laughs> a tap cart that was a, a portable bus that they could move around. This wedding, they had, you know, like a custom dance floor. Um, so that's always something that we've been competing with. But when we're working with our clients, we really just focus on what's most important to them. And so sometimes adding in a fun detail that they've seen on Instagram becomes important. But for a lot of our clients, it really is just about their day. And they're pretty good at kind of taking a step back from, from the the pressure of social media. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, this must be so busy for you and, and your staff. And so I'm wondering too, about how many, when people are invited to a wedding, do most of the guests show up? Because I remember probably during COVID or maybe pre-COVID, you know, you might get a, a certain no-show, like, or certain people who say, I can't attend the wedding. I wonder if they, like, the appetite to, you know, people are ready to party. We're ready to have a big wedding again. Are more people showing? Yeah, absolutely. More and more people are showing up. Um, we used to say that when you sent out your guest list, you were looking at, um, kind of like 10 to 15 percent not um, able to attend. I would say that's gone down to like maybe three to five percent. People are ready to come to weddings and they're ready to travel. All right, we continue talking about big wedding budgets.
Uh, wedding's getting bigger, the guest list getting longer. Yeah, the price tag is going up too. My guest is Emma McCormick. Emma is a wedding planner. Thegoodparty.ca is Emma's website. And I apologize for a little uh, technical trouble we had there just before the break there. But we're back no in business now. Okay, here's what I want to do. Open the phone lines right now. So phone me right now. I'd love to hear from you on the wedding season heating up. Are you seeing more of this in your family, among your family, your friends, more weddings getting bigger? Are you getting more wedding invitations? Please call me, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. What do you think about that price tag for a wedding right now? You heard Emma talk about you know people spending like $40,000 for a wedding. Phone me and let me know what you think of that. I remember when I got married a long time ago, we spent ten grand, 10000 bucks, And I didn't have the money, Emma. I had to go to the bank to get a loan. And boy, oh boy, I thought that was an expensive wedding, $10,000. That wouldn't get you much these days, right? Ten grand. No, it's definitely doable, though. I mean, couples do it all the time. It's just really what's important to them. So they might have a small dinner for their immediate friends and family and do an elopement-style celebration. Um, they could have a photographer and videographer and still be able to share all the beautiful pictures of the day without having the big price tag of the big party. Okay, so you can you can sort of do it on on a budget. Absolutely. And we hear stories all the time about like friends and family members who have gone to gone to weddings where there haven't been wedding planners or there haven't been um, kind of some of the more traditional vendors involved. So maybe they've done catering their way or they've got married on a friend's farm. Um, they've brought in some of their own rentals, et cetera. Um, yeah. They've done more of a, a DIY project. It's not to say it can't be done, but the average cost is definitely around 40000 when you're going with a more traditional venue and you're working with um, the professionals. Right, right, 40000 Okay, phone me on the open line on that one. Tell me what you think about that price tag. For a wedding, if you've been to some weddings recently, are you seeing more invitations? Are the weddings getting bigger? Guest lists getting longer? Let me know what you're seeing out there. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Narinder in Surrey. Hi, Narinder. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. I wish it could cost forty grand. An average Indian wedding, you're looking for 300000 plus. Whoa. Yeah, you're talking about a hundred. Uh, Hundred, about one hundred fifty thousand just for the girl side, and then the boy side because the boy side throwing the reception, you about two hundred grand. Holy smokes! That's that's on the cheap end. Yeah, Whoa. absolutely. With as many yeah. guests as are are coming to lots of these traditional Indian weddings, that's a price tag that we've heard many times over. Oh yeah, the Indian wedding's going to be huge. Narinder, like how long doesn't an Indian wedding go for a few days? The celebrations go on. Okay, yeah, they can be big. They can be absolutely huge, for sure. That'd be a lot of fun. Wish I could get an invite <laughs> Get an invite to some of these parties. This is how great. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Peter in Surrey. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Well, I'm going to come from the other way. I mean, I think this is just ridiculous, you know. And people wonder, you know, everybody's complaining about money and they can't afford a house. You know what you do? You go, you get married in a church with three friends, you take the $30,000 and you put it in the bank or you put it down payment on a house. Why would anybody? Our kids got married and they had like eight people over in the backyard and he bought her a $1,000 ring and they bought a house. I mean, that's a smart way to do it. People that spend forty grand and then they complain they have no money, they can't afford things, it's because they're stupid and spending 40000 on a wedding. I, it's just, it's ridiculous. I've never heard well, anything so dumb in my life. Okay, Peter, thank you for that. Well, I guess it depends on what kind of party you want. If you want a, a big, splashy party at a nice venue, you know, it is what it is. It's going to cost what it costs. And for, I guess, maybe a lot of young couples, too, they might not be paying themselves. Maybe, you know, bank of mom and dad kicking in here, right, to pay for the Emma, in your experience, like, do the couples typically pay or do the parents pay? I would say it's often a shared cost between um, the family and our couples. Um, yeah. That that really does kind of ebb and flow depending on the situation. Sometimes the family is footing most of the bill. Sometimes the couple's footing all of the bill. Um, it really depends on kind of where they are with their finances, what's important to them. We have even had couples who have gone ahead, started the wedding planning process, 
kind of been thinking they're working with, you know, a thirty or $40,000 budget. And then as the wedding approaches and before they've committed too much to vendors, we've had a couple of them actually pull back and cancel the services with us and make the decision to just do a small elopement and put that money towards the house. Oh. Um, so it's definitely, like, I would say only, you know, once or twice a year maybe we have that situation come up. But it's mm. certainly something that I've heard before that they've decided after kind of looking at costs that there's other places that they'd like to allocate their budget to. Whereas mm. there's a lot of people who do have that more flexible income and they're going to spend 40000 80000 $150,000 on a wedding and do what's important for them. Sure. Michelle in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Michelle. Go ahead. Hi. Um, my husband and I, we met later in life and we didn't really need a big splashy wedding, but we wanted something nice. So we ended up um, for less than $6,000 going to the Empress, and they took care of everything for us. It was just the two of us, and we had pictures, and it was a really beautiful day, and when we got back, we just took a bunch of people out for dinner. Okay, when was that? That was 10 years ago. Okay, okay, so 10 years. Thank you, Michelle, for that, for sharing that, and uh, it's your 10-year anniversary. Happy anniversary this year, I guess. Uh, Well, certainly the Empress is a nice location, nice hotel in uh, Victoria, Emma, but $6,000 10 years ago is probably a lot more now in today's dollars. Your thoughts? we got a minute left here, Emma. Yeah, I mean, $6,000 10 years ago for a two-person, what it sounded like was a two-person elopement. Um, I think that you could probably do something pretty special for $6,000 even today. Um, It might be up closer to $10,000 if you really want to do something special and you're going to spend, you know, three nights away and have the photographer and the videographer and the stunning bouquet and the beautiful dress. Um, But, yes, generally across the board, Mike, the cost of weddings have gone up substantially in the last 10 years, but certainly because of COVID. Emma, where can people reach you? Um, They can find us at our website, thegoodparty.ca, and our most current work on Instagram at thegoodparty. Thank you for coming on today. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Okay, let's talk about the story here that has received attention around the world, and that is recent incidents where orca, orca whales have actually attacked sailboats off the coast of Spain. Why would they do that? This has happened several times here now where orcas have sort of roughhousing around these whales and or around these vessels and have caused some serious damage to them for sure. Got Terrence Scarf standing by from UBC to discuss. First, let's have a listen to this report here now from NBC News. A sunset sail off the coast of Spain disrupted by killer whales, also known as orcas, slamming themselves into this 66-foot sailboat. It's part of a wave of orca attacks, at least three boats sinking in recent weeks. Researchers saying orca encounters in the area have been increasing since 2020. More than 20 interactions recorded just this month. Is it possible this is just the killer whales playing? Absolutely. Okay, so we've seen some boats actually sunk by orcas off the coast of Spain. Wow, let's discuss this now with my guest, Taryn Scarf. Taryn is a student at UBC, uh, studying for a um, master's degree. Taryn is an orca researcher. Taryn, thank you for coming on today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You bet. Thanks a lot for doing it. I find this fascinating. This is something I find quite unusual. You don't normally think of orcas being aggressive toward uh boats like this why are they doing that yeah that's the question on all the researchers minds right now so it's hard to really know their motivation behind it at this point everything is speculation this is a relatively uh, newly studied population of orcas and so while they are doing a lot of damage to the boats we don't know for sure that it's actually aggressively motivated Um, So one theory does uh, play on that it is them purposely attacking the vessels. So there seems to be a mother in the group of orcas in particular who was the first instigator and seems to be targeting the boats. So one theory is that she could have been hit by a vessel and has some trauma and she is now purposely targeting these boats as a type of revenge. However, it seems like they're only going off uh, after a specific type of sailboat, and they're only going after the rudder. 
So from my opinion, it seems more like they're just curious and playing with the boats. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering about that too, because I've seen some unbelievable videos of orcas sort of swimming beside boats and jumping out of the water near boats, and it almost does look like they're they're showing off or they're playing. So do you think that's possible, that they're just sort of trying to, they're just having a good time? Yeah, exactly. And even off the coast of BC here, we've seen killer whales kind of approach vessels and, like you said, touch them from the side. They're very tactile. They love touching things. Uh, And it does seem to be mainly juveniles who are interacting with the vessels off the coast of Spain and playing with the rudder and banging their bodies against the boat. So it could just be of teenager roughhousing getting a little bit out of hand. (laughs) Okay, you kids better settle down there. So maybe this is sort of juvenile behavior. How do we know they're juveniles? I guess the scientists there can tell, right? Yeah, so this, like I said, this is a newly studied population, but they can yeah. tell the individuals apart and their relationships with one another. So but just based on their size in particular and the shapes of their dorsal fins, they can right. tell if they're male or female and how old they are approximately. Right. It's interesting to see this population of whales in the news. For, for, our, for our listeners here, of course, we're all familiar with our beloved uh, killer whales here. We've got the resident whales off our coast, and then we have the, the transient whales that come through our waters as well. Do you know what, like, the behaviors of these whales off the coast of Spain, would these be sort of transient whales as well, just moving through, or do they live, they live there all year round? So they do move through, like, the transient. So they'll kind of go up along the, cor- the coast of Portugal and Spain. So in their movement patterns, they'll stay relatively in that area. But uh, in their diet, they're a lot actually more similar to the southern resident population where they eat fish. Um, they're also critically endangered. And like the southern residents who where the population's at about 70 individuals here, this population off the coast of Spain is at about 40 individuals estimated. Right. Right. And speaking of our whales here, are, have we ever seen any behavior even approaching this in our waters, Taryn, like whales that are approaching a boat like this or sinking a boat i don't think that's never happened here i don't think or has it no not to the level that it's happening off the coast of spain where the whole kind of family group is going after the boat we have had uh, a southern resident a few years ago now luna who was separated from his mother quite young and he spent five years up in nutka sound off the west coast of vancouver island and he would uh, rub against the boat, push the rudders, and that was his form of social interaction and play. Yes. Yeah, oh yeah, people will remember that for sure. Is this, um, is this a potentially dangerous behavior? I mean, obviously, if a boat sinks, that's danger to human life, but, and that's not a good situation. I wonder if it's potentially hazardous for the whales, too. Yeah, definitely. And that's another point, too. If they are kind of attacking these boats, they would be ramming their bodies into it, which it would be like us just kind of running continuously into a brick wall, and it would definitely take a toll on your body. So there would definitely be a lot of uh, potential for self-inflicted injury if, if they were purposely ramming into the boat. Right. Speaking of Taryn Scar from UBC, Taryn is an orca researcher talking about the orcas off the coast of Spain that have sunk some boats there. Is this the type of behavior that you think could could spread to, among different orca populations, or would this likely still just be contained in this group? It's unlikely that it would spread to other orca populations. Even here off the coast of BC, like you said, we have the residents and the transients, and they're kind of like the distant cousins who really don't like to interact with each other. They'll see each other once a year, and that's about it. So it's unlikely that it'll be transferred and learned through populations, but we've seen it spread within that population off the coast of Spain to more individuals within the population. Yeah. what You mentioned that, you know, there's lots of documented cases of whales getting close to boats and touching boats like this, and you mentioned that they're very tactile animals, that they seem to enjoy touching stuff like that. Do you think that that's another, another sort of bit of evidence that this is maybe sort of a a play behavior that there's they're playing like i've read about orcas that maybe like to follow behind a boat in the jet stream of uh the propellers of a motor yeah exactly 
Yeah, so they'll stick their face into kind of the propeller area, and it's just like a jet stream blowing over their face. Uh, And we also, with the northern residents up on the northern Vancouver Island, they're known to go to specific parts of beaches where it's quite shallow and there's a lot of rocks, and they'll rub their bodies along the rocks. Right. So so they definitely like the, like, it's almost like a spa-like feeling for their bodies, <laughs> a little massage. But and, and since they're only going after one specific type of boat, and they seem to be targeting the rudder of the sailboat in particular, biting at it, it seems like there's something really cool about that rudder that they're interested yeah. in. Taryn, it's a very cool area of study you're involved in there. Good luck with your, uh, your future studies there at UBC. Appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.